Bienvenidos and welcome to the histories of Mexico. Episode 8, Tabasco, Part 6. Charge of the Thirteen. You are currently listening to the song, Madre de Deus, or Mother of God, and it falls under the category of medieval Spanish music. Now, admittedly, the time period we are going to talk about today isn't exactly the medieval period per se, but I felt as though the title was fairly relatable to today's episode, given that we will be seeing a city founded in the name of this same Mother of God, Mary of Nazareth. I also found it sound beautiful yet haunting, similar to how these next few episodes are going to feel for me. While the events are interesting, they do represent a large amount of pain and suffering, as well as the near destruction of a culture that had been around for a long, long time. In a way, these events to me, like the intro song, are beautiful in their historical significance, but haunting in the violence and blood they took to forge. Moving on from my unannounced philosophical musing, in today's episode we will be finishing up with Juan de Grijalva and explore the third voyage of Tabasco initiated by Hernán Cortés in 1519. This will lead us to the Battle of Centla and the first major conflict between Spaniards and Mayans in Mexico since the disastrous battle of the Bad Coast suffered by Hernández de Córdoba and his ill-fated expedition at the hands of the Cojuo Maya of Champotón in 1517. Now, before we get into it, let me just give a bit of a preview of how things will run throughout the end of the year. As of releasing this episode, I have already written the following one in order to get a jump on my supplemental episodes, the first of which I hope to have out by the middle of December. Then, release episode 9, followed by a second bonus episode concerning the holidays and how they are celebrated in Mexico, hopefully released by Christmas. My wish is to then spend the holidays writing episodes 10 and 11, which, fingers crossed, will begin to wrap up our exploration of Tabasco so we can move on with our narrative and jump back through the centuries to fully flush out the Olmecs and move on to the Zapotecos and our next state, Oaxaca. We have quite a ways to go before we get there, so let's just jump right into it. When we last saw Captain Juan de Grijalva, he was waving goodbye to his two ambitious for his own good sub-captain and fellow Hidalgo, Pedro de Alvarado, having just had what is undoubtedly one of the most surreal meetings in history, sharing a meal with the mighty Tabs Cobb, the last father lion of the Chocos of Potonchan. No doubt, as Grijalva watched Pedro de Alvarado's ship sail into the distance, he let out a sigh of relief, 
glad that the most troublesome element of his voyage was finally sailing far, far away and into the horizon. And he could now get down to some more honest and respectable discovering and trading with the locals. Had Grijalva known what was to come, he might have gone back with his entire fleet and cut off the head start he unwittingly gave Alvarado. For the second Pedro got back to Cuba, he immediately did two things. Take full credit for every good thing to come from the expedition and drag Juan de Grijalva's name through as much mud as he could possibly find. Grijalva's uncle, Governor Diego de Velázquez y Cuyar, for his part, had been busy ruling Cuba but had found ample time to worry over the status of the voyage he had just funded, along with his nephew, who was still untested in the role of commander. The gold found on the Cordoba mission and its craftsmanship equally occupied his mind, and it made the ambitious governor feel two powerful emotions. Greedy excitement at the riches he could gain if he only got the mandate from the Spanish court to engage in said claiming and nervous anxiety that somewhere out there some other colonial governor had also discovered gold and at that very moment was going to beat him to that all-important royal mandate punch. He would be right about that fear, but it would surprise him to know just how close that person was to him and just how much the Cuban Don would do to help that man on his way to usurp his coveted land and titles. This dread increased after a failed mission to discover the whereabouts of the Grijalva fleet was turned back due to bad weather. On that mission, Velázquez sent another Hidalgo who had grown up in the governor's own household back in Spain, Cristóbal de Olid, who was born in Beaza, Spain in 1487 and had joined Velázquez when he came to Cuba and participated in the conquest of the island they now called home. De Olid is another of the Spanish conquistadors who made their name by accompanying Cortés on his famous campaign through Mexico, and he is interesting in that he seems to have gotten along with just about everyone he met. He appears to have been a close friend of Juan de Grijalva, given that the two were around the same age and occupied the same social status as favorites of Velázquez, having grown up within the Don's own household back in Spain. De Olid would also form a close bond with Cortés and even save the Spanish general's life during the campaigns in Mexico. In 1523, several years after the establishment of Nueva España, Cristóbal was given command of a force sent to conquer Honduras in the name of Hernán Cortés. But the young Spanish captain appears to have maintained closer ties with Diego de Velázquez, who convinced him to betray Cortés, the recent conqueror of the Aztecs, in favor of his childhood patron. He was soon defeated by a bitter Cortés counter-response in Honduras, and we will cover more of Cristóbal de Olid's actions when we all go on campaign with Cortés. He will even pop up again in our episode during the Battle of Centla, so he isn't incredibly important yet, but his name and actions are recorded extensively throughout this time period, so his is a name to keep in the back of your mind, but I'll remind all of us when he gets really important again. For the moment, however, Cristóbal de Olid's conquistador career would hit an early snag, when a particularly strong storm broke his ship's anchor lines and forced the young captain to return to Cuba after only a few days of sailing. So there Velázquez was forced to sit in Cuba, anxiously wringing his hands over the lack of news when along floats in Pedro de Alvarado, with not only news of the expedition, but a cargo hold full of golds, jewels, stones, and gifts from the various tribes they had encountered, and one heck of a story, let me tell you. 
Diego de Velázquez is said to have been overjoyed, and according to Bernal, could do nothing but embrace Pedro, a man who certainly knew how to spin a yarn. Now, the treasure Pedro delivered to Havana was perused by the impressed agents of the crown, and the proper royal fifth was subtracted, but Pedro also brought with him the seeds of doubt he would begin to plant in the Cuban governor's head about the efficacy of his nephew. Upon landing, Pedro would reunite with his three brothers and closest friend on the island, a certain Hernán Cortés, no doubt the two bonding over the many schemes their cunning minds were always plotting. But it was not long before the ever-loyal Pedro began the squealing we hinted at last episode. Now, let's quickly recall that most of these gifts were acquired by the bartering efforts of Juan de Grijalva, particularly those received from Choco leader Tabs Cobb, who the Spanish captain had decided to flatter rather than threaten. This same Juan de Grijalva was now being smeared and defamed by the scheming de Alvarado, who took all the credit for the discovered treasure. Treasure, might he add, acquired despite the hindrances provided by Grijalva himself. At first, Don Diego Velázquez might have dismissed these claims, but as the days turned into weeks and then into months, the governor's anxieties must have gotten the better of him, and Pedro's incessant mudslinging finally began hitting its mark. Pedro's arrival thus had a rapid cooling effect on the relationship between Velázquez and Grijalva, but it also gave the ambitious warlord the impetus to send his hopes and dreams on a boat to Spain, praying to his god he was not too late. Velázquez, remember, had one huge fear that kept him up at night. The fear that his royal mandate to claim land and treasure would be stolen out from under him. So with the return of Pedro and all the gold, Velázquez decided his time to act was now. On the mission upon which rode his hopes and dreams, he sent his trusted chaplain and skilled negotiator to speak personally with King Carlos I, a man by the name of Benito Martínez who set off in the direction of Spain with several pieces of gold recovered on the recent expeditions, along with letters personally addressed to key members of the clergy, the royal court, and the Council of the Indies, the governmental body in charge of all colonial dealings in the West Indies, the region we are currently talking about. Benito Martinez would reward his governor's selection by acquiring for his patron both letters of approval for the previous expeditions and the letters proclaiming Don Diego de Velázquez the Adelantado, or Forward Captain of Cuba, a title which came with the all-important mandate to explore and claim any lands found in the newly discovered landmass. But as stated before, the distance these decisions would need to travel would play a huge role in the way events actually played out. So while Benito Martinez would return triumphantly to Cuba, he would not do so for many months, and by then it would be too little too late to turn back the clock on what had occurred. So again, Velázquez would go back to anxiously await a long overdue Grijalva, but this time he also began planning a third, grander voyage, in anticipation of the mandate he was sure he would receive any day now. Grijalva, for his part, was not having the easiest go of it. After watching Pedro sail off, he led the fleet as far north as Cabo Rojo, an islet off the coast of Veracruz, after a series of adventures we will relay in the Veracruz episode. What is important for our story is that this part of the voyage was not nearly as diplomatic as the first, and saw the expedition face off against the natives in La Batalla de las Canoas, or the Battle of the Canoes, which also yielded the river the name of the Rio de las Canoas. 
Grijalva did manage to find some Indians to trade with, most famously a delegation from the court of Aztec Emperor Moctezuma II Xocoyotzin, marking history's first official interaction between the Aztec and Spanish governments. What's important to take away from this part of the voyage is twofold. First, that the stories told by the Chocos of Kalua and its mysterious kingdom were true. And second, that Grijalva returned with considerably less booty than Pedro de Alvarado did, since this part of the mission did not interact with the mercantile capital, but rather smaller villages on the outskirts of massive provinces. It is said by Bernal Diaz del Castillo that the order to head back had been given rather begrudgingly by Grijalva, but also done at the rather forceful insistence of his two subcaptains, Alonso de Avila and Francisco de Montejo who up to this point had played the roles of dutiful subordinates. Grijalva, it seems, wanted to keep going and even wanted to begin claiming lands to colonize and hold. The other two Hidalgos, backed up by navigator extraordinaire Anton de Alaminos, saw the reality of their situation. All three men had realized that while they had held off the natives at the Battle of the Canoes, their paltry number of men would not hold out long against any show of force larger than a few dozen, and from the looks of it, the native populations were estimated to number in the tens of thousands, far outnumbering the amount of bullets the Spanish had brought with them. So with supplies, men, and morale at an all-time low, the three men practically forced the young Captain General to call it quits and head home to regroup on the 28th of June, 1518. Various adventures ensued on the return journey, including more hugging and dining with foreign native dignitaries. Just kidding. The natives either fled or attacked them at every turn. The supplies and morale were further depleted, and the ever-present Huracan would have his say, with the fearsome deity particularly active during this time of year. And in his rage, he held up the Grijalva fleet with furious winds for three months, finally allowing them to land in Santiago de Cuba, on the 20th of September, 1518. On his five-month voyage, he had recovered an estimated $20,000 worth of treasure, along with various idols, bird feathers, flowers, and other miscellaneous gifts and offerings, as well as discovering and naming a handful of rivers and ports that would serve as the footholds from which the Spanish conquest of Mexico and the Yucatan would take place. All this would not be enough to undo the damage the now months of slander had wrought on the Velázquez-Grijalva partnership. Things were not made any better when Francisco de Montejo and Alonso de Avila, Grijalva's previously loyal sub-captains, saw the way the winds were blowing and backed Pedro de Alvarado's claims that Grijalva had been detrimental to the expedition, forcing the voyage to take longer, refusing to turn around when it was clear they couldn't move forward, thus endangering all their lives, and had even treated the native chief as if they were equals, playing dress-up on the deck of the San Sebastián for conquistador shame. Oh, and did they all mention how he had not set up a single settlement? Tisk tisk, Grijalva. Tisk tisk. Velázquez, it seemed, had heard enough and coldly received the young captain. Grijalva, it is said, left the meeting between them disgraced and humiliated, retiring to his plantation in Trinidad, to live a quiet life of managing his estate for four years. Here, Grijalva drifts almost completely out of our focus, but let's give the adventurous young man his well-earned due and follow him into his tragic end. 
The story of Grijalva is picked up by Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, who claims that in 1522, the adventurous spirit Grijalva so obviously possessed proved too much to bear, and he sailed to the island of Hispaniola, modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic, where he linked up with the Adelantado de Jamaica, one Francisco de Garay, who offered him a position in his armada that was preparing to sail for Garay's newest appointment as governor of Panuco, a port on the coast of the state of Veracruz that had been established by Cortes three years earlier. This adventure would prove ill-fated, for the appointment given to Garay was from the Spanish crown, who had no way of knowing that Cortes had already appointed his own man to watch over the city of Panuco. Some ensuing shenanigans and betrayals later, and Grijalva was captured by the Cortes element, while Garay escaped and traveled to Mexico City to deal with Cortes directly. Things got dangerous for the young Grijalva when Garay died of either pneumonia or poisoning, depending on which side of the Cortez camp he fell on. But Cortez seems to have remembered the man who discovered Tabasco fondly, for he sent a $2,000 ransom to release the famed explorer from captivity, along with a letter telling him he was free to go wherever he pleased, be it back to Cuba, Spain, or to join Cortez himself on future expeditions. Grijalva, it seemed, had had enough of Mexico by this point, and instead returned to Hispaniola, where he hopped on a boat headed for Panama and the reviled clutches of Pedro Arias de Avila, the man known as Pedrarias, whose evil heart was still pumping after all these years. There, he was commissioned to join Captain Benito Huertado to capture the small village of Villa Hermosa, deep in the Honduran jungle. Dr. Reyes claims the area had been terrorized by the native leader Guatucanola, who one day took advantage of the Spanish need to constantly resupply both their men and horses by hiding weapons in the carts carrying said supplies and hay into the camp. At night, when the Spanish guard was down, the villagers recovered their weapons and slaughtered the entire garrison in the morning during a fiercely fought but disorganized battle. Both Grijalva and Huartado are said to have scrambled a defensive effort, but despite fighting ferociously against Guatucanola's people, both men are said to have died at the hands of the Honduran leader's ambush. Dr. Diogenes puts it best when he laments in his book, quote, The discoverer of Chocotan and San Juan de Ulua died obscurely in that corner of Honduras, in a humble village of Villa Hermosa, on January 21, 1527 at the age of 37. When disappointed, poor, and obscure, he served under the command of the proud and cruel Pedrarias de Villa. It seems almost poetic that Grijalva would meet his end, fighting in a village called Villa Hermosa, while the river that bears his name would also come to flow through a city named Villa Hermosa that would become capital of the state he helped found. The legacy of Grijalva is somewhat overshadowed by the grander voyages such as Cortez's conquest of Mexico, Francisco Pizarro's conquest of the Inca, or even Francisco de Montejo's coming conquest of the Yucatan. But, as I have hopefully relayed, the discoverer from Cuellar fully deserves a place in the annals of history for his seemingly unique approach to dealing with the native powers that existed in pre-Hispanic Mexico completely contrary to how most men ended up approaching similar situations. I have mused enough in the previous episode about what might have been had men like Rijalva been in charge of the entire operation, 
but both the approach and contributions of Juan de Grijalva will always be appreciated here at the Histories of Mexico. So let's say one final goodbye to a man so central to our first few episodes, and whose name and memory will never leave us as long as the river that bears his name keeps flowing through the capital of the great state of Tabasco. Now that we have said goodbye to Juan de Grijalva, let's say the briefest of hellos to his replacement as head of the expeditionary forces, a man Don Velázquez had selected for the job long before Grijalva had returned, Hernán Cortés. Despite the massive shadow he casts over this place and time in history, he will hop in and out of our Tabasco series only briefly and mostly in this episode, and so I am very carefully dancing around his story since you could write an entire podcast series on the life and accomplishments of Hernán Cortés with little trouble, and surely somebody already has. Suffice it to say that Cortés's appointment as head of this grand third expedition was riddled with intrigue, plotting, and backroom dealings that saw Cortés first given land by Velázquez, then imprisoned for launching a mutiny against the same hand that had just fed him, then not only spared, pardoned, and released, but appointed captain general of the third expedition by Velázquez, plotting an intrigue galore. Shortly before the mission was set to embark, Velázquez seems to have come to his senses as he began questioning both Cortés's loyalty and his decision to make him captain general. Oh gee, what gave it away, Velázquez? Perhaps the mutiny? Unfortunately for the Cuban governor, the far-sighted Captain Hernández had already made the preparations necessary for his fateful decision to take off without the approval of Velázquez or the royal court, forever turning his once patron into a bitter rival and dragging the two of them into a decades-long legal dispute in the courts of Spain. It seems fate had a sense of humor when it came to Velázquez, for a few days after Cortés took off, Chaplain Benito Martinez arrived with the letters of mandate addressed to Velázquez, letters which were useless at this point, now that Cortés had decided to take off on his own. These events and those of Cortés's preparations along the cities of Cuba before setting off I have just glossed over very quickly, but will take up more of our time whenever we get to the life of Cortés in the podcast's timeline or the supplemental episodes on the life of Velázquez, whichever comes first. Cortés would hastily take off from Cuba on the 18th of November, 1518, with some accounts claiming Velázquez caught up to him, leaving the dock with enough time to ask his rebellious captain if this was truly how he would be leaving his compadre, the man who had given him his start in the new world. To which the Spanish captain simply replied, Señor, may your excellency pardon me, but these things and the like are done before they are thought about. I am at your excellency's orders. Velázquez did not seem to have a reply for the infidelity and shamelessness on full display. It is important to remember that this is the Bartolomé de las Casas account of the story. Bernal Díaz del Castillo, on the other hand, tells a completely different version of events. In his story, the entire departure went downright friendly. Quote, after many demonstrations and embraces of Cortés by the governor and of the governor by Cortés, he took his leave. The next day, very early, after having heard mass, we went to our ships, and Diego Velázquez himself accompanied us, and again they embraced, with many fair speeches, one to the other, until we set sail. So, 
Who's telling the truth? Well, I have to say that while I'm not calling Bernal Diaz a liar, he does contradict himself in the very next chapter while admitting that Velázquez did in fact change his mind about Cortés, but Bernal claiming it to be the result of constant goading by scheming family members who hated Cortés and claimed he should not be trusted for his shady comportment, having reportedly left in the dead of night. So which is it, Bernal? Hugs and mass in the morning, or conspiratorial midnight flight? Why would Velázquez lose faith in his captain's selection because of his family members reporting Cortés leaving in the dead of night when he was reportedly there the very morning Cortés left? I could just be going a bit hard on the elder Bernal, writing down his memories 50 years after these events took place, so maybe his aging mind missed this little contradiction through the various drafts and edits of his own work. But as warned in the last episode, we must keep our grains of salt close at hand whenever reading these kinds of sources. From my two cents, I believe it more likely the Bartolome de las Casas account came closer to the truth. However, here too, I believe the esteemed chronicler couldn't help but embellish, since I highly doubt Velázquez would have just accepted Cortez's response, put his hands in his pockets, kicked the ground, and given up on stopping Cortez had he caught up to him on the docks as he departed. So once again, the truth is likely residing somewhere in the middle. We will have ample time to speculate about the actual series of events when we cover the Cortez voyage in HD, and whatever the exact series of events was, a few things we know for certain. Cortez was made captain by Velázquez. Cortez left before the proclamation of Velázquez as Adelantado came back from Spain. And Velázquez almost immediately regretted his decision of naming Cortez and actively attempted to undo his mistake. He would twice send a squad of men after the disobedient fleet with orders to strip Cortez of his command and arrest him, but the charismatic and slippery Cortez managed to not only escape arrest, but in fact pulled an Uno reverse card on Velázquez and turned many of these men sent to arrest him to his own cause. The Cortez voyage would first land in the neighboring Cuban town of Trinidad, where they reunited with our old friend Juan de Grijalva who put them up in his own estate. There they continued gathering supplies, additional manpower and captains, and armor in the form of padded cotton shirts well suited to repel some arrow and spear points. This supply and manpower gathering they repeated throughout the various towns and islands that surrounded Cuba for several weeks, eventually setting off with 500 men, 11 ships, 16 horses, and a sizable number of crossbows, muskets, arquebuses, and cannons, eventually landing in Cozumel in early February 1519. Here, he would take stock of his men and weaponry and assign his subcaptains for the coming campaigns. I won't name all the captains here, but notable among them were Grijalva voyage veterans Alonso de Avila, Francisco de Montejo, and Cortez BFF Pedro de Alvarado as well as Cristobal de Olid, the failed seeker of Grijalva. These men Cortés would come to rely on, and even have to thank for saving his life on more than one occasion, during the struggles to come. A few of these men will also be important in our current Tabasco series, so we will give them a proper introduction when their presence in the narrative demands it. After a series of adventures in the Yucatan shores, Cortés eventually followed both Córdoba and Grijalva around the Cape of Catoche, past Champoton, Lázaro, and the Laguna de Terminos, 
finally arriving at the mouth of the Grijalva River on March 12, 1519 CE. Again, I am sparknoting these events as they will be covered in higher resolution during a future episode. What does fall directly under the focus of our episode is what happened when Cortes arrived in Tabasco that March of 1519. When we last visited the kingdom on the banks of the Grijalva River, we had just seen the vastly separate worlds of the Chocos and the Spanish meeting in peace and their respective leaders embracing as brothers. This behavior would come back to haunt the two men. For Grijalva, when his subordinates mockingly reported his comportment back to his superiors as weakness and an indication of his inability to lead. According to both chronicler Bernal Diaz and Dr. Diogenes Lopez Reyes, Tabs Cobb too would face such mockery at the hands of his contemporaries, specifically the Cojuos of Champoton, who mocked the Chocos, particularly Tabs Cobb, attributing his comportment to weakness and an indication of his inability to lead boasting to their Puma neighbors how they had killed 56 of the foreign invaders, while the Chocos were too weak to defeat a single one and therefore had submitted to their king. This, it seemed, was too much for the Chocos' pride to take, and they apparently determined themselves to attack the Spanish if they ever dared show their faces in Potonchan waters again. And so, when Spanish faces began appearing at the mouth of their river, the Chocos would come out to meet them in force. We are now going to read from Bernal Díaz del Castillo, who claims that initially Cortés asked Jerónimo de Aguilar, the maybe-real, maybe-made-up interpreter who was picked up and rescued from Shamanja and the clutches of its leader Shamanzana, on the island of Cozumel, when Cortés landed at the opening of his as-of-yet illegal conquest of Mexico. And, as a quick correction, I pronounced both of these words incorrectly last episode. They are Shamanja and Shamanzana, not Zamanha and Zamanzana. A thousand pardons for that little mistake. Regardless of the pronunciation, the priest rescued from Shamanzana was asked to tell the natives floating closest to the war galleons that they had nothing to fear and that the Spanish meant them no harm, wishing only to speak to their leaders about peace and possible trade negotiations. This request was met with threats and aggression. The air of benevolence and hospitality had evaporated in the year since Grijalva had left due to the cojuos of Champoton, and in its place there were only spears and arrows ready to meet the invaders. The angry natives told the Spanish to wait and not disembark if they valued their lives, and that they would return with word from their leaders. But Cortes, greatly distrusting the suspiciously cold natives, lost no time in preparing his forces to meet this principal challenge and ordered the cannons be placed in each boat, while the bowmen and musketeers were divided up among the battalions. Cortes held the advantage of men who had gone on the previous voyage to Potonchan with Grijalva, and held knowledge of the land which they utilized to discover a small land route that led directly to the Choco capital, to which Cortes planned to send veteran of the Grijalva expedition Alonso de Avila, a hundred men and ten crossbowmen, this contingency was ordered to take the path and wait until they heard the guns begin to fire, where they were then to attack the far side of the city while Cortes and the rest of his force attacked from the river. The following morning saw this plan set into motion, with Cortes not waiting for the Chocos to make their move and instead sailing up the Grijalva within sight of the banks 
which were crowded with a sizable contingency of Choco warriors, all shaking and rattling their spears and bows, and making an absolute racket on their conch trumpets and turtle-shell drums. It is here that we get another glimpse at the political shrewdness of Cortes, for his next actions he made sure were made within sight of an even more official type of overseer accompanying his voyage, a king's notary, one Diego de Godoy. Cortes once again asked the priest Aguilar to translate and asked if they would allow them to land, resupply, and if they had a second to talk about God and his majesty King Carlos I. According to Bernal Diaz, he was also very careful to add at the end of this request, quote, Should they make war on us, that if in defending ourselves some should be killed and others hurt, theirs would be the fault and the burden, it would not lie with us. But they went on threatening that if we landed, they would kill us. End quote. Cortes, it seemed, understood that the mandate was not intended for the Indians, but rather necessary for the legal requirements back in the courts of Spain in order to establish official ownership of lands and resources. These could only be established if the booty was attained through fair terms of engagement. Otherwise, potential gains could be opened up to litigious review and quagmire by covetous rivals. All that is a really complicated way of saying that Spain, and the Spanish church specifically, was cool with the taking of stuff, so long as the people you were taking it from were warned ahead of time and given the chance to convert before being looted. And so Cortes made certain that on all his campaigns he had a man such as Diego de Godoy, the king's notary, with the high enough status and repute back in Spain, who could corroborate his stories of nobly offering the Indians religion and monarchy before engaging in any violence and ransacking. Thus, after officially warning the Potonchanos in the eyes of both the law and, more importantly, Diego de Godoy, Cortes moved closer to the banks, which predictably pressured the defenders into hurling their spears and letting loose their arrows upon the invaders. The Spanish, receiving their invitation to attack, jumped straight into the water, which at points went up as high as their waists, and arduously pushed up the banks and into the streets of the city. While Hernández de Córdoba and Juan de Grijalva both sustained injuries in their first landings and encounters with the natives, it appears all that befell Cortés during this hard-fought landing was a lost shoe in the mud. Just goes to show you the luck some men have on the battlefield, but interestingly, both Córdoba and Grijalva would die young from wounds received directly from battle, while Cortés would die of plain old dysentery back in Spain at the respectable age of 62. So perhaps this luck at only losing a shoe extended beyond this first battle. The Chocos, for their part, fought ferociously, but were driven further back with the arrival of Alonso de Avila and his hundred-man flanking attack. The maneuver was an exceptional success, made even more impressive by the fact that it was Cortes's first time commanding men in battle, proving his natural talent at strategy and conquest. The Spanish slowly inched their way further into the city, all the while facing an unrelenting hail of projectiles from the retreating defenders. The push continued until the invaders overtook a great square with a court, chambers, large halls, and three temples, at which point Cortes ordered a stop and regrouped at the foot of the typical giant saba that adorned the Choco squares. 
With his sword, Cortes slashed three cuts into the trunk of the great tree and symbolically claimed the land in the name of his Spanish king, proclaiming that if anyone had any objections, he would defend this right with the sword and shield which he held in his hands, to which all his men cheered and agreed that Cortes had done a great thing just now, to which everyone cheered again, everyone that is but the suddenly very quiet king's notary, who grumbled under his breath in a dark corner. You see, the king's notary had also been sent with secret orders by Velázquez, who was still the man officially in charge of the expedition. But yet here was Cortés making overt signals that he fully intended to break from Velázquez's grip by not even naming the governor of Cuba in his victorious proclamations. Further complicating the matter was the fact that as far as Godoy was concerned, the king had not yet issued any such mandate to claim lands in his or anyone's royal name. There appeared to be, however, nothing the notary could do but keep his reservations to himself if he wanted to guarantee his safety, and by the time he did have the opportunity to safely object, events were already so far ahead there was virtually nothing he could do about the potentially illegal situation he had just witnessed. This would close the first day of battle and the invasion of Potonchan. The Spanish were left with 14 wounded but no dead, while the bodies of 18 dead Chocos amplified the confidence of the conquistador force. They slept there in the very square they won during the night, with sentries on high alert, and in the morning sent out companies captained by Pedro de Alvarado and Francisco de Lujo, with a hundred men each to go and explore the surrounding land. Cortés intended to send interpreters with each company, Julianillo with Francisco de Lujo and Melcorejo with Pedro de Alvarado. However, Melcorejo was unable to be located. His clothes were eventually discovered hung up in a palm tree, and the Spanish realized the Mayan captive had fled during the night via a canoe. This annoyed the Spanish captain, as he feared what the ex-interpreter would reveal to their enemy. But for the time, there was nothing to be done, and so Cortés sent his exploratory expeditions out sans interpreter. De Lujo drew the bad luck straw and ran smack into a contingency of native warriors during his march. Vastly outnumbered, the Spanish captain put up a valiant defense as he retreated back to camp by alternating the fire of his musket and crossbowmen, accompanied by the occasional hand-to-hand -hand sword charge. The Chocos followed their retreat with a storm of arrows, stone-tipped projectiles of all manner, and met the Spanish steel with their own fearsome macanaz. Francisco de Lujo's bad luck finally broke when Pedro de Alvarado appeared out of nowhere to form up with de Lujo's battered line and reinforced the struggling captain. An Indian runner had been sent by Francisco de Lujo when the fighting had broken out, and as soon as Cortés got word of the assault, he marched out in force to rescue his trapped men. This they achieved, but at the cost of the first two casualties of the Cortés expedition and eleven wounded. The Chocos, meanwhile, had lost another fifteen, with three of their number captured this time as well. One of these appeared to the Spanish to be a chief, and they gave him some beads and another request to end the hostilities, to which the captured man replied that Melcorejo had already spoken to the chiefs and told them to fight the Spanish day and night since their number was small. This put the camp into DEFCON 1, the highest DEFCON I am told by Wikipedia. 
Melcorejo had apparently told the gathered caciques to surround the invaders, and so Cortes determined the only way to survive was to meet the enemy in the open field, specifically so Cortes could call upon his ultimate secret weapon. Preparations made. The company of men marched out in search of the Indian host, and on the 25th of March, a day in the Spanish Catholic calendar, which is known as Our Lady of March Day, often shortened to just Lady Day, they traveled south into the plains and swamplands of Centla, which back then would have been mostly covered by fields of maize and grain, for which the region got its name of Centla, which in Nahuatl means en el maizal, or among the cornfield. And within these cornfields of Centla, the two forces would meet each other and engage in a ferocious clash of men, stone, steel, and blood. In their initial assault, Bernal Diaz, who again was fighting in the thick of things, claims 70 of the Spanish force were wounded in the initial assault, while one soldier fell dead from using an arrow as a Q-tip. The Spanish would fight back with musket, crossbow, sword, and the deadly cannon exacted a terrible price on the defending Chocos. Despite the casualties inflicted by the Spanish guns, the locals seemed to outnumber the invaders 300 to 1, according to Bernal. The situation would have seemed dire had Cortés not engaged his secret weapon. In the discussions of how 500 or so Spanish managed to topple the mightiest empire in Mesoamerica, a lot of stock is given to the advancedness of the Spanish, be it their weaponry, their tactics, or their beliefs. But the Spanish had already fought and lost several battles with the natives, who, once getting over the initial shock of gunpowder weapons, realized their sharp, pointy spears and arrows still left the Spanish just as dead. Even now we see that if a small number of Spanish was caught in the open against overwhelming odds, they would eventually be whittled down into defeat. So the weapons themselves do not seem to be the biggest game changers on their own. Some have also pointed to the superstitions of the native Mexicans themselves as a contributing factor towards their fall, citing a popular myth that the Mexica had regarding a legendary return of the plumed serpent Quetzalcoatl. But again, I don't buy either the validity of these myths or their contribution to the Spanish victories. In my humble opinion, it is here at the Battle of Centla that we see the biggest factor in the Spanish domination of early native armies rear its head. For as the tide seemed to be turning against the Spanish line, from behind the chocos would come a thundering sound they could only have compared to an earthquake. Hours before the fight had even begun, Hernán Cortés would personally select 13 of his best riders to mount the horses most suitable for charging to take a wide path around the flanks of the Mayan ranks. I am going to name them quickly, and you should recognize the first four at this time. They were Cristóbal de Olid, Pedro de Alvarado, Francisco de Montejo, Alonso de Avila, Alonso Hernández Puerto Carrero, Juan de Escalante, Juan Velázquez de León, Francisco de Morla, Gonzalo Domínguez, Morón de Bayamó, Pedro González de Trujillo, and a man named Lares, the good horseman, in order to distinguish him from the other Lares that was on the expedition. All 13 of these men would go down as some of the most famous or infamous men of their time, being granted lands and titles, and most importantly, trust by Cortes 
soon after the conquest of Mexico was complete and by some of the governments that were established in his wake. We will get to know them better when we follow Cortes through the central Mexican jungles, and a few of them will feature heavily in our next episode. But most of them will serve as future governors and mayors of several territories and towns along the Americas, at least the ones that survived the Aztecs. This charge of the 13 will go down as the first cavalry charge and maneuver of any kind in the Americas. And what a charge it would be. The arrival of these units into the battlefield not only turned the tide, but rendered the Chocos utterly paralyzed at the sight of them. They had never before imagined, let alone beheld, such a large and fearsome-looking creature. They believed that man and beast were one and the same. But beyond that, we must imagine the effect of a beast that seemed to cause earthquakes as it ran, stabbed with sharp steel, made the sound of thunder crack through the air, and the Spanish having tied bells to the horse's legs, caused them to make a thunderous racket as they charged at the backs of the unbraced, unsuspecting, and wholly unprepared Potonchanos. At the same time as the Chocos were recoiling from this monstrous force, the Spanish they had just been fighting but were now turning their backs to made a ferocious charge of their own and smashed into the enemy lines, causing the cornfields of Centla to run thick with blood and frantic Chocos seeking refuge into the safety of the steaming jungles nearby. The conquistadors would run fleeing men through with their spears, trampling many under their mounts' heavy hoofs, and kicking up dust and dirt, making the battlefield a hazy mess of men, steel, and horses. This charge would not only save their beleaguered comrades, but win a smashing victory for the Spanish, and being that it had been Our Lady of March Day, they would rename the town of Potonchan after said lady, christening the town Santa Maria de la Victoria. The Spanish had suffered two dead, over 70 wounded, and five horses injured, and returned to the remaining anchored boats at the coastal mouth of the Grijalva to treat these wounded men and animals. The children of the Puma, meanwhile, had their dead numbering in the hundreds. Many died from cannon fire or of natural causes due to horse-related injuries. According to Bernal, over 800 chocos lay dead, with hundreds still groaning from wounds and injuries. The day belonged to the conquistadors, but more importantly the Spanish horses and cavalry charge that had shattered the Choco line and spirit. This defeat and the creature who precipitated it would become ingrained in the cultural memory of the Chocos and their descendants for centuries to come. Its influence still seen in dances we have already discussed such as El Caballito Blanco and La Danza del Gigante, still celebrated in various communities in and around Nacajuca the spiritual successor to Potonchan. Five Choco Indians had been captured by the Spanish in the aftermath and sent to the caciques with offers of peace, taking with them the customary green and blue bead offerings. Bernal claims that the priest Jerónimo de Aguilar quote, spoke many pleasant and flattering words to them, telling them that they had nothing to fear as we wished to treat them like brothers, that it was their own fault that they had made war on us, and now they had better collect all their caciques of the different towns, as we wished to talk to them." End quote. The messengers went off with their cargo, and soon fifteen Indians with painted faces and ragged clothes arrived with offerings of food. Cortez is said to have received them graciously, for the Spanish must have initially seen this as a good thing. However, according to Bernal, 
The priest Aguilar once again interjects, recognizing the significance of the painted faces and what it said about the low social status of the messengers. Angrily, he demanded that, quote, if they wished for peace in the way we offered it, chieftains should come and treat for it, as was always the custom, and that they should not send slaves, end quote. It seems Aguilar's adherence to custom did the trick, and the next day, 30 Indian chieftains, all clad in magnificent cloaks, brought the typical peace offerings of meat, fish, fruit, and maize cakes, and of course, beads, all by themselves. They then asked Cortez for the permission to burn and bury the bodies of their dead, permission which was granted immediately, and just as quickly enacted as the Chocos did not wish for their deceased to rot in the baking Tabascan sun or be eaten by Centla's wild and sacred wetland predators. What followed is a very curious yet fascinating piece of history we have to go over. You see, Cortez was a clever lad, as we have already mentioned. So clever, in fact, that Bernal Diaz tells of a plan he concocted after the 30 chieftains bearing gifts had left to tend to their dead. Having told the Spanish captain that they would return the next day with the words of the full assembly of native chiefs that had gathered to discuss peace. As they left, Cortes turned to his men and, according to Bernal, said the following, quote, Do you know, gentlemen, that it seems to me that the Indians are terrified at the horses and may think that they and the cannon alone make war on them? I have thought of something that will confirm this belief. End quote. No doubt a devilishly wide grin began growing on his face as he said this, and he began to twirl his mustache. Cortez next ordered three things be prepared. First was to have the largest cannon they possessed be loaded with a heavy cannonball and powerful charge of powder, then be placed on his ship. The second and third were to bring a mare on the ship, and then a particularly young and energetic stallion was allowed to get close enough to her to catch a whiff of her scent and feel the sensations that young and energetic males do when in close proximity to the opposite sex. Said comely mare was then hidden on Cortez's ship, while the now very excited stallion was taken on land and hidden by a grove behind where the caciques would be led to stand the following day in order to speak with Cortez. Everything prepared, the Spanish awaited for the following morning with their clever ruse, where the assembled goes, religious priests, and warriors representing the defeated peoples of Tabasco arrived. This time, their numbers had increased to 40, but again they came bearing gifts and offerings of peace, saluting a seated Cortes and his men and asking pardon for their aggression, promising henceforth to be friendly. Through the interpretations of Aguilar, Cortes answered in a grave tone that the number of times peace was offered to them had been thrice too many, and that the fault was theirs, and that they deserved to be put to death along with their towns burned and all of their peoples enslaved for their transgressions. Furthermore, Aguilar and his companions were agents and vassals of the supreme emperor Don Carlos I, who had sent them to their country to favor and gift any who would enter his royal service. If the caciques were not disposed to this arrangement, then the tepustles on board the ship might get very angry and kill them all. Tepustle, Bernal explains, means iron in the local language. And this had been the predetermined signal with those aboard the ship to light the fuse of the cannon and launch its iron missile over the hills to the absolute mortification of the assembled Choco delegation. Cortes then continued that they should not fear, for he had come in peace, 
and so he would tell the angry iron beings to bring no harm to them. The stallion that had been hidden this whole time was now brought out and once again still feeling the throes of young male lust jerked and whinnied in the direction of the ships and by consequence the already alarmed native envoys. As the horse began pawing the ground and whining with excitement, looking all the time eagerly, straining towards the chiefs and priests, and the place where the scent of the mare was being carried by the ocean breeze to reach and caress him. To the assemblage of indigenous leaders, this seemed as though the fearsome beast was roaring at them, and they were paralyzed with fear, now doubly afraid of both the tepustles and these horrible four-legged monsters that wanted nothing more than to eat them all. Cortes, rather content with how this clever trick was going so far, and having confirmed his suspicions, rose from his seat and approached the horse, leaning into its head as if to speak to it, meanwhile secretly ordering the two orderlies nearby to lead it far away. Turning and offering a comforting smile, he reassured the Indians that he had asked the horse not to be angry, as they were friendly now and no longer wished to make war, but instead desired peace. Then, no doubt raised an eyebrow in their direction and added a very insinuative, Isn't that right, fellas? To which the terrified Chocos all must have hurriedly shaken their heads and stumbled over one another in efforts to ingratiate themselves to these terrifying and alien beings. Among them is said to have been the father lion himself, Tabs Kolb, who was not having the best year. To him, Cortez addressed a series of five questions. Why did they choose violence after three times being offered peace? Where was the gold? Why were they scared of so few Spanish being so many? Did he understand the might of the Spanish king and submit to him? And had he recently considered joining the Catholic Church? The Supreme Court is said to have answered that after Grijalva came, all the neighboring tribes had been mean to them and mocked the Chocos for not wetting the obsidian points of their macanas with Spanish blood. Plus, Grijalva had come with only three ships, while Cortes had come with eleven, and the increase in number had made them fearful that the Spanish fully intended to invade. Additionally, the traitor to both sides, Melcorejo, had told them that the Spanish themselves would kill them if the Chocos did not kill them first. The fate of Melcorejo is a mystery to us, for when Cortes asked what had come of the traitorous mine, whom Cortes very much wanted returned to them, for some love, care, and attention, the father Puma told him he had no information as to his whereabouts, having fled after the Battle of Centla was lost. Bernal, however, goes on to hint that he was likely sacrificed by the Chocos after his strategy had failed, and likely would have sacrificed him regardless of the outcome due to his helping of the Spanish and accepting of their religion. Like I said, though, it remains a mystery as to what actually happened to him, but he does drop off the historical map at this point, so let's get back to Cortez's questioning. In regards to the gold, Tabs Cobb explained in Potonchan they did not know what a mine was, and they had small quantities of gold, acquiring what little they had through trade with peoples who resided far into the interior of the vast land the Spanish were only now beginning to grasp the size of. To the question as to why they feared the Spanish so much, he explained how they had never seen such fearsome things as steel weapons and armor, guns, and most terrifying of all, the horse. Having lost so many men and having only been able to kill two of their enemies, the numbers spoke for themselves and the Chocos had lost heart. 
As for the fourth and fifth question, he swore fealty and submission to the Spanish King Charles I and V, and agreed to conversion and baptism, promising to break their idols, for they had failed him and his people, having been instead defeated by this new god of the cross and his agents on earth. As this episode of negotiations came to a close, Cortés kindly asked the humbled Coes, priests, and warriors to repopulate Potonchan and bring supplies for him and his men in order to fully convince the skeptical horses and tepustles that they were sincere in their offers of peace, to which the stupefied leaders merely nodded and accepted and hurriedly left, happy no doubt to be leaving with their lives. Now how much we want to believe in this story is fully up to us. We can very easily take this at face value and consider Bernal Diaz del Castillo a truthful and honest man who would never embellish a word he put to paper. Or maybe, just maybe, Bernal was building up Cortez's memory and reputation in light of recent political events that had sullied the name of the chronicler's beloved ex-captain. In the document we have been following, the true history of the conquest of New Spain, Bernal spends the chapter before this defending his writing from scathing reviews he received from various contemporary historians who claimed he was not telling the truth and rather making things up. Now those other contemporaries are questionable in their own validity as well, but it seems strange to me that Bernal has told his entire story up to this point and made but passing mention of these critiques until now. Yet it is here before this chapter of Cannons and Horses that he decides to go into a very personal and emotional rebuke of any challenge that his portrayal of events are inaccurate or made up. Make of that what you will. One big red flag may be the active inclusion of the priest Jerónimo de Aguilar, who we have already discussed holds a big fat historical question mark above his credibility as a real-life figure. Yet, in his account, Bernal includes the rescued clergyman frequently and with confidence, and so validity of Jerónimo de Aguilar, the cannonball, and excited stallion stories shall be left to you, the dear listener, to believe or not. The Battle of Centla would have major repercussions to both the native Chocos of Potonchan and the Spanish conquistador Caz. The most obvious result would be the conversion of the locals into the Christian faith and the folding of their lands into the Spanish Empire beginning with the rechristening of their city from Potonchan to Santa Maria de la Victoria. Upon receiving the caciques the next day, Cortes ordered them to repopulate the city for the Spanish had designs of settlement, and so needed people to work the farms and fields and not be hiding in the jungles all day, resisting their rule. They gave the Chocos two days to return the people to the town, an order which the Chocos quickly complied with, ever wary lest the four-legged monsters lose their patience and start throwing cannonballs around. Next, Cortes officially asked that the chiefs give up their idols and sacrifices, which they accepted, and having only just accepted the Christian god, were bestowed an image of the lady being celebrated on Lady Day, Mary the Mother of Christ. The image of her holding a baby Jesus in her hands was placed on a newly built altar and the assembled villagers all proclaimed they would revere and watch over her. A tall wooden cross was then constructed by the ship's carpenters and the following day, Palm Sunday, 30th of March, 1519 CE, saw the first official mass in front of a cross and altar in continental Mexico and the holy procession was witnessed by the Coz, their wives, their children and the new villagers of Santa Maria de la Victoria. 
A giant saber just minding its business in the plains of Sentla was arbitrarily selected and also converted into a cross to commemorate the place where the Christian god had granted his loyal subjects their miraculous victory. No word on any memorials made for the horses who also participated in the battle and, in my personal opinion, had played a pretty big role in the victory themselves. But hey, life as they say isn't fair. To explain the other major outcome of the Battle of Sentla, we will have to jump back a few years to a conflict that broke out between the Chocos of Potonchan and their Nahua neighbors in the kingdom of Xicalango. If you recall, the Nahua established three communities that bordered the Choco lands in Tabasco and Campeche. These were the communities of Awalulco, located close to the modern town of Sanchez de Magallanes, Simatan, which lay in the modern-day municipality of Cunduacan, and Xicalango, sitting on the banks of the Laguna de Terminos. Much like the Chontal communities, these three sites kept in close contact with one another, and there would be much traveling to and fro. This might not have been a problem for Awalulco and Simatan, as they were practically neighbors. However, Xicalango was located on the banks of the Laguna de Terminos, and getting to and from Xicalango, the Nahua would have to cross Choco territory or sail through Choco-controlled waters, and that would not sit well with the ever-hostile children of the Puma. This territory of Terminos would prove a historical headache and source of conflict for the region, which up until the 1800s was considered a part of Tabasco, and beginning in 1513, the inhabitants of an island within Xicalango territory and situated directly in Laguna de Terminos, known as La Isla del Carmen, got into a military conflict with Tabs Cob and the rest of the Choco Nation. The last native ruler of Tabasco led an army of 20,000 Chontal warriors out of Potonchan to subdue and defeat these troublesome islanders. This would force the defeated lord of Xicalango to send the customary tribute from a defeated city to a victorious one if the defeated one didn't want to invite further pummeling from the triumphant force. The rulers of Xicalango would send along a group of female slaves with their customary material tribute, and among those sent was a young woman named Malinsin. It is likely that when Malinsin began walking towards Potonchan, now in exile from her homeland and slave to an enemy power, that she had a pretty good idea of how her life was going to play out. She would likely become the prize of some Choco warrior or elite put to work either cooking or cleaning until she died in a land far from her own. If she was lucky, her owner might not treat her so harshly, but most likely she felt a mixture of fear, sadness, and resignation as she took her last steps of certainty into an unknown future. But fate had a funny way of working out, and Malintzin would in fact not end up dying in servitude to some Choco family in Tabasco. Instead, she would soon reach a status higher than that of Choco Chief Tabs Cobb himself, for Malitzin is known by the much more familiar name of La Malinche, or Doña Marina. La Malinche's destiny would really kick off when she was again offered as tribute by the now defeated Chocos to the victorious Cortes, leader of the Conquistador force, after this Battle of Centla in 1519. She was then selected to translate for Hernán Cortés on his coming expeditions into the central Mexica lands, and she would eventually become his consort, mother of his child, and a most trusted advisor and confidant. 
The image of La Malinche is one of extreme divisiveness in Mexico, and one we will explore in depth on the episodes concerning the conquest of the Aztec Empire. For Malitzin, through her mastery of various languages, particularly those of the central Mexican Valley, thanks to her Nahuatl descent, as well as Spanish and Mayan, has played a very big hand in participating the downfall of the mighty indigenous empire and has left behind both the stained legacy as a traitor to her people and a recognition, albeit begrudgingly at times, of her remarkable abilities and influence she wielded in birthing the nascent kingdom of Nueva España. Malitzin addition to the Cortes party would be the last major event we will cover from this Spanish landing. Soon after holding this historical first mass, Cortes would be off again, heading for Veracruz, and on his way out, leaves behind a handful of men to watch over the newly won lands, promising to send word back to Cuba and Spain to begin the colonization process in earnest. These orders would not come for several years, as Cortes's attention would be tied up in the death battle he engaged in with the Aztec Empire. This event ultimately marked the official beginning of the colonial period in Mexico, and more specifically in Tabasco, and this newly named city of Santa Maria de la Victoria, which we will often refer to as just La Victoria, would be the first territorial gains made in the name of the Spanish Empire on the Mexican mainland. However, long after this conquest, Cortes would face challenges from mutinous subordinates, one such being the aforementioned Cristobal de Olid, the man who was unsuccessfully sent by Velázquez in search of Grijalva, and who rode as one of the Thirteen in the pivotal charge of the Battle of Centla. He would eventually betray Cortes at the encouragement of his ex-patron Don Diego Velázquez, and in 1524, Cortes returned to the territory of his very first victorious battle en route to Honduras to punish his insubordinate general. He passed through various Tabascan regions and municipalities on his journey, such as Nacajuca, Jalapa, Emiliano Zapata, Balancan, and Tenosique, to name a few. Forced to make this journey as Cortez's prisoner of war was the last Aztec emperor, Cuauhtémoc, who was believed by the Spanish to have begun plotting a supposed indigenous insurrection by the local Tenosique tribes in order to free him and kill his captors. Lamentably, it is said he was executed due to these dubious suspicions on this very trek through the Tabascan jungle on the 28th of February, 1525 CE. The story of how Cuauhtémoc came to be the last emperor of the Aztecs and prisoner of Hernán Cortés will be revisited later in the podcast. Although his capture and death at the hands of the Spanish captain are known, what is not known is where exactly this execution took place. The two biggest contenders are either the city of Kanitzan or Itzan Kanak. However, both are said to have been located in the southern Tabascan municipality of Tenosique, the same municipality where the Danza del Pocho is performed. According to the accounts, his corpse, long ago stripped of its royal garbs, was hung on a tree and left to rot by the advancing Spanish. The local chocos immediately took down the Aztec emperor's body after the Spanish soldiers left and reverently buried the dead leader. Do you remember way back in episode 4, we mentioned how a group of Chocos made a migratory expedition which transformed them into the Oaxacan Chontal, and that from this tribal line came Emperor Cuauhtémoc's matrial ancestry? Of course you remembered, and the Chocos of Tabasco had never forgotten this connection either, 
for here we see the deference they paid to this long-lost cousin. Local legends claim that the remains of Cuauhtémoc were recovered and taken to the city of Itzcaltepan in the modern state of Guerrero, where they rest to this day. On this journey to stamp out the Cristóbal de Olid's treacherous fire, Cortés is also said to have visited his first converted city of Santa Maria de la Victoria, which by this point was in a sorry state of affairs. After abandoning his meager garrison to its fate shortly after the Battle of Centla, it didn't take long for the natives to notice a considerable lack of tepustles and horses, emboldening them to rise up against their new masters and force the handful of men left behind to refuge themselves in the surrounding hills far away from the jungled interior, living in constant fear and harassment from the natives. Cortes would send a revolving door of men to try and pacify the situation, starting with Luis Marin, a Cortesian veteran who failed after back-to-back -back expeditions yielded little gains. Rodrigo Rangel, another veteran of the Aztec campaigns, also proved ineffective, and even our old friend Bernal Diaz del Castillo took a crack at pacification with some notable success pushing into the interior and capturing rebellious leaders hiding in Simatan. However, rebellion after rebellion would continue to spring back up. Juan de Vallencillo would be up next as he was sent from Coatzacoalcos by Hernán Cortés, given 50 soldiers and 200 natives, and told to take care of the political situation in Tabasco. Vallencillo was infirm, yet still attempted to perform his duties admirably, managing to establish a relative foothold in the land surrounding La Victoria, and even rebuilt some of the infrastructure destroyed by the rebels within the capital city itself. Despite these nominal gains, the situation was far from under control, and things only got worse as Vallencillo finally succumbed to his illness and died in 1527. One of his lieutenants was sent by the rest of the garrison via canoe to Veracruz to petition for a replacement captain. The vacancy would be filled by Cortez's next pick, a man named Baltasar de Osorio y Gallegos, who would likewise come to fail, as we will see in the next episode, making him the fifth general to do so in four years. The problem wasn't that the Spanish weren't winning battles, but in fact that the Spanish couldn't keep the rebellious natives in front of their guns long enough to be properly defeated. As soon as the Spanish would push into a city, town, or community and inflict major casualties on the Maya, they would evaporate back into the jungles and surrounding hills, exacting a heavy toll on anyone brave enough to attempt to dislodge them. As the Spanish returned to their strongholds and let down their guard, the Maya would pour back out of their hiding spots and furiously attack the Spanish again until the whole bloody cycle repeated itself. Oh, and add to this mix the many diseases that began raging through the camps of both sides. And it is here and in this state that we are going to stop for the day, having come to the end of Cortez's involvement in Tabasco and finding ourselves looking down the barrel of Montejo's moment in the Tabascan spotlight. In today's episode, we covered the events of the return of both Pedro de Alvarado and Juan de Grijalva to Cuba, including the falling out between Grijalva and his uncle, Don Diego de Velázquez. We then moved to talk about the events surrounding Hernán Cortés's illegal campaign, landing in Tabasco, conquering of Potonchan and the Chocos, the Battle of Centla, including its mighty charge of the Thirteen, and the founding of Santa Maria de la Victoria, holding its first official mass. 
We then explored the direct aftermath of the Battle of Centla, as well as the story of how Malitzin met Cortes. Wrapping up with a quick rundown of the first five mayors Cortes appointed to watch over La Victoria and the new territory it controlled, Tabasco. In the next episode, we are going to dive into the conquest and pacification of Tabasco by Francisco Montejo and his followers, which will spill over into parts of the Yucatan Peninsula, as well as Chiapas, Honduras, and Guatemala. The Montejos cleared out of Tabasco sometime around 1550, so after we finish off with them, we can head into the birth and history of Villahermosa and its turbulent history with the privateers of the West Indies. Be sure to send any questions, comments, corrections, concerns, or clever jokes to thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. That's thehistoriesofmexico at gmail.com. Please comment and rate the show if you are enjoying it. Share the show with someone who can't stop talking about the second Black Panther movie. And stay tuned for the first supplemental episode coming out soon. Now, as always, thank you for listening. Gracias. Y que viva bien. Adios. And goodbye. For now.